Today on the Real Faith for Real Life podcast, we're talking about how to gain access to God as we continue our journey through the book of Hebrews. Plus, we'll be checking in with current events to see how real faith intersects with real life. Today, we're talking robots. They're making burgers, they're making pizzas, and now they're beating us in chess, too. Uh, All that and more straight ahead on today's podcast. This is Real Faith for Real Life, a podcast from Cascade Fellowship in Grand Rapids, Michigan. All right, welcome to this week's podcast. We believe that our faith affects every area of life, so every week we start the show by talking about what's in the news. And in the news this week, Bill, just a lot about (laughs) robots. Lots of robot stories, right? And so I'm going to ask you, Bill, do you know what's up with robots this week? Oh, man, so much robot news. I love it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So have you, Eric, been noticing a huge increase in the amount of robot vending machines? In fact, I have. You'll see them around more and more. An article I read this week said, quote, in the food courts of the future, you could avoid human interaction. Haven't we talked about this before? (laughs) (laughs) By ordering from a hamburger vending machine, a pizza vending machine, and of course, a cupcake vending machine. So a company called Robo Burger is now out with a machine that will make you a custom burger with toppings and everything in six minutes for $6.99. And a company called Pizza Forno is rolling out another machine. This one for 10 to $13 can serve up a hot piping 12 inch pizza in under three minutes. All right, wow. And the cool thing is it looks like a giant ATM that shoots pizzas out instead of money. (laughs) So, I don't know, Eric, what do you think about pizza made by vending machine? You know, I love pizza no matter what, so Mm. I'm all for it. Um, I did see a cotton candy vending machine at a Tanger Outlets, so I'm realizing that this is a true thing. Um, And I'm okay with it. I love food, so robots (laughs) and food. (laughs) Robots, maybe they'll get it right and there'll be some consistency. Right. Or maybe it could go horrifically wrong. We'll see. Yeah, hopefully they're not burning the pizza. But you know what always perplexes me is how you charge $10 to $13 for a pizza when Little Caesars is still making them for 5 bucks or $5.55 or whatever. Uh, has that changed yet by inflation? It's bound to it's, soon. Yeah, it's like five ninety nine maybe or but, something. Yeah. Man, how can how can you beat that? You can't beat it. So you take the humans out of the equation, you save a bunch of money, you still charge twice as much for the pizza. I don't know. Well I don't know. Somebody's making money, but it's definitely not the robots. So the robots <laughs> the ro- are they're paying back <laughs> they're paying us back by beating us in chess now too. They're like, you know what, these humans, we're look gonna take with, them out. Look at you with your segue. I know, right? You no, know, somebody's making money, but it's not the robots. <laughs> they're beating us at chess. I love it. So story number two today, yes, robots are into chess as well. The the headline this time is not as cheery. Mm-hmm. This is a, a wild headline. Here it is. Chess robot breaks child's finger. All right, let's dive right into that story. (laughs) A chess-playing robot went rogue and broke a child's finger during a tournament in Russia last week. Um, And so the Moscow Chess Federation president said, yes, a robot broke a child's finger. This is, of course, bad. That's a quote. That's a direct quote. (laughs) Of course. I love it. That that is, of course, bad. Of course, bad. (laughs) (laughs) He said the incident took place because the boy rushed the robot. Mm. He didn't give the robot enough time to make his move, and so the boy reached into the chess area, the board, and the robot just grabbed him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he explained, hey, listen, we just rented this robot. It's not ours. We were exhibiting it, and you know what? It's not our fault, but the guy who programmed the robot, obviously he overlooked some things, 
Like if you're playing a child and the child tries to make his move too quickly. <laughs> As if it, if it was an adult, though, you can break all those fingers, That's right? right. Oh, Go for no it. No child, though. <laughs> <laughs> so they, here's the, the ending of the story. They put the child's finger in a cast and he continued to play the rest of the tournament. So, wow. I know, man. Chess, man. Those people are tough. I remember seeing <laughs> this, uh, this story come out and I was like, I wonder if the robot just mistaked his finger mm. for like a chess piece yeah. or something like that because he was in the, the zone at the wrong time. But, yeah. but robots have to make that decision and they mm-hmm. have to start to sort out these kind of like dilemmas that are in front of them that are more than just science and computation. Yeah. They involve people's health and well-being, Ethics. including yeah, including yeah. cars, right? Yeah, um, right and wrong. Um, as the scale of robot interaction in the real world grows, like you said, cars are going to be controlled by AI and algorithms, and they're going to face making decisions the same way humans would have to weigh various factors. And so I even read somewhere that in the future, you may have different modes on your car. Hmm. Your autopilot could have like an ethical mode where, I don't know, it, like if you see a child in the road, you'd sacrifice yourself to save the child. Like, oh, could, wow, could you ask your car to do that? Yeah, I wasn't going that that's, far. When you said ethical mode, I thought, will not cut off the driver that made <laughs> yeah. me mad. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So. But yeah, I mean, the classical ethical, ethical dilemmas, you know, are you willing to sacrifice yourself to save the life of another? You know, it, how are we going to program these cars, their AI, to think about those sorts of situations? Yeah. Wow. Feel like human life is more than just math and circuits and stuff like that and so it makes me feel a little uncomfortable but it's really hard to look forward in time to see how this will all play out yeah good that uh more than just scientists are getting involved but we need uh ethicists and of course religious people mm-hmm. maybe pastors and mm-hmm. uh, leaders of religion should get involved in this discussion as well it's really interesting how all that blends together. Yeah, I think what he just said is, uh, Elon Musk, if you've got a job for a pastor to help think, <laughs> help cars think better, I guess Bill's think interested. more ethically. Yeah, yeah right. right. <laughs> yeah, right. So. Well, today we're excited to continue through the book of Hebrews and think about some really big weighty things there as well. It's a fascinating study, but uh, folks, we're going to put on our thinking caps because we're getting deep today as we continue through the book of Hebrews. Today is part four in our trip through the book of Hebrews. Uh, We've been summarizing the passage or the message of the book with just two simple words, greater than, and we've been doing that for a couple of weeks now. So if you're just joining us, let's catch you up. This is what we've seen. Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the angels. And Jesus is greater than Moses and Joshua. Now today, we're going to see that Jesus is greater than Aaron and the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament. But before we get into it today, Bill, uh, can you talk to all of our listeners uh, and kind of answer this question, you know, why should we care about the Levitical priesthood or, or even this in general? Yes, for the few that haven't completely abandoned the podcast, just by the mention <laughs> of the word Levitical priesthood, thank you for sticking around. I know uh, this is going to be a challenging topic, but but it's still really relevant, actually. I mean, if you think about the priesthood in the Old Testament, it was all about access to God. It was about representing the people, the sinful people before a holy God, making sacrifices on their behalf, interceding for them and mediating. And the bottom line is that is still our case today. We still are sinful people 
and we're dealing with a holy God, and so we need someone to speak for us, to represent us, to intercede for us. And in the Old Testament, the folks had that physical human being who would go behind the curtain, make sacrifices every year. They had that person in the position of a high priest. And so as we now look at the book of Hebrews, which was written in the first century, uh, you know, you've got people converting to Christianity, and they're saying, what happens to that position? I feel like I still need somebody to represent me before God. You know, who is making a sacrifice for me? Uh, who is representing me with God? How can you say this Christianity is better? How can you say Jesus is better? I'm missing something really big here, I feel like. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, something that we should definitely care about. And the author definitely cares about it. We're approaching the center point of the book of Hebrews, the heart of the book, if you will, the most important thing that the author has to say. So let's dive in and see why that's the case. And uh, yeah, Eric, we'll begin right at the beginning of chapter five. And and yeah, as we get into this, um, I'll have you read, like we did last week, some passages, and I'll kind of interrupt and explain as we go, and we can discuss, you can ask some questions and keep this discussion going. But uh, we'll pick up in Hebrews chapter five, and um, we'll read the first 10 verses, and we're going to see the first four kind of refresh our memory about the qualifications for a Levitical Old Testament priest, a high priest. And then the remaining verses, 5 through 10, they talk about how Jesus fulfills those qualifications. So first, what the qualifications are, and then how Jesus fulfills them. Good, I love it. So let's take this piece by piece here, uh, starting with Hebrews uh, 5, verses 1 through 4. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Okay, we'll pause there. We're going to see four things. And the first is just a statement of the office. It's the high priest. And the second is a job description, which is offering gifts and sacrifices for sin. Uh, Simply put, he was the person in charge of dealing with the problem of sin. Mm -hmm. So verse 2, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. Okay, so we'll pause again. The third thing we see, a qualification, is uh, the weakness of the high priest. He was a, a member of the community he represented, and he had sympathy for them because he had he shared their same weaknesses. Um, so he lived in the fallen world right alongside everybody else, experienced life, experienced temptations, experienced problems and weaknesses, and because of that, he could represent them well. All right. Continuing on, and no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. So finally, fourth and finally, is a description of the process of appointment. So no one just decided, they woke up one day and decided, I'm going to be the high priest, (laughs) (laughs) or even a priest, you know. No one took that honor upon themselves. They were called by God. So four things, the office, the sacrifice, the representation, and the appointment. Okay, so now let's see how Jesus fulfills all these things. All right, verse 5, In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so... 
What are we talking about here? The appointment of Jesus as high priest. Jesus was appointed by God. He didn't just decide himself, wake up one day and decide, but he was appointed. And the author here is quoting Psalm 110, which alludes to how this went down and Jesus being appointed by God. And you'll notice as we get through these, they're going to appear in reverse order, which is really interesting. So in verses one through four, we saw the office, the sacrifice, the representation, and finally the appointment. And now we're hitting these in reverse order. So first is the appointment. Yeah. During the days of Jesus's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Okay, so this parallels uh, the weakness of the Old Testament high priest. The suffering here described that Jesus went through everything human beings went through, the tears and the struggles and the the pain of life and living in a fallen world. So that parallels what the Old Testament priesthood was part of their qualifications as well. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And this is an allusion to the sacrifice that he made, offering a sacrifice for sin. Yeah, finally, verse 10, and uh, was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So fourth, uh, restatement of the office itself. So if you lay these things out, and uh, maybe we'll do this on the video version of the podcast. So if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see this visually laid out. But it's kind of cool. Those four things are laid out, and then it's shown how Jesus fulfills them in reverse order. And it's called a chiasm. It's a literary device that's very common in Scripture. And chiastic structures, they call attention to that focal point in the middle of the chiasm. At this point, it's the appointment of Jesus. That's what's at the middle of this description. So the author is communicating something to us that it's very important for us to realize that God himself appointed Jesus to be our high priest. Okay, so let me pause here just to say this. Hebrews is marvelous literature, but you have to do some work to see that it is marvelous literature, mm -hmm. like we just did. That, that, that example of how to unpack those 10 verses is an example of the work you have to do to see how beautiful the book really is. You know, a surface level quick reading might leave you thinking, why in the world is he writing like this? Everything seems so random. And yet, if you dig a little deeper, you discover the structure, and it's, it's a masterpiece. Mm. You'll see it in individual sections, like these 10 verses, and you'll see it in the book as a whole. So, for example, the structure, we've alluded to this before, it alternates between explanation and exhortation, just like a sermon does. So that's one part of this structure you have to kind of see. Uh, and the transitions between those blocks, they look forward and they look backward. And so you have this foreshadowing of topics he's going to talk about later and this review of topics he's already talked about. Uh, for instance, this is not the first time we've heard him talk about Jesus being our high priest, although it is the first time he's really unpacking it. Um, so it seems random at first. It seems like, whoa, this is scattered, and this is hard to wrap my mind around. This is messy, but it's actually a literary device. So if you're not ready for it, if you don't take the time to look for it, this book feels like written in an extremely un unorganized way, but really nothing could be further from the truth. It's... It's just a little harder for us to discern that since we're a few millennia removed uh, from the way people wrote back then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so 
Uh, Bill, help us understand where we are in the letter right now. Like, where do we find ourselves, and how do we understand where we are now? Yeah, well, you'll recall the uh, author's usual approach in each of these comparisons is first to show how Jesus is similar to what came before, and then to show how he's superior to what came before. So comparison and then contrast, um, similarity and then superiority. So what we just talked about, those 10 verses, show how Jesus is similar to the Old Testament priesthood. And now it's time to talk about how he is superior. Mm-hmm. And tucked away in verse 10, it's, it's foreshadowing how that will happen. He was designated to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Right, and so Melchizedek is not a name from the Bible that any of us hear very often. Um, it kind of sounds like we need to go a lot deeper into the Old Testament to make that connection there. You're right. Buckle up, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's about to get deep, and maybe that's why there's a chapter and a half of the author telling us, basically, hey, get ready. And he says our faith should be deep. Uh, we should think about things deeply, the hard things. And so um, we're going to take a little sample of this. It's kind of, a, like I said, a chapter and a half aside before he then returns to the topic of Melchizedek and picks up his reasoning. But let's look at this little intervening section and see what we can learn from it. Yeah, so Hebrews 5, uh, 11 through 14, it says this, We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Yeah, so this is a very direct uh, paragraph. He's kind of saying, literally, you are sluggish in the ears. You become spiritually lazy. Um, He's saying they're not as attentive as they should be. Uh, In other words, it's almost like he's saying they haven't moved past the ABCs of God's Word. They're still stuck in elementary school. Mm. They don't listen well. They're not attentive. They forget what you tell them. They can't do anything for themselves. And because they don't have this depth of knowledge, they're prone to run right into danger. If all that sounds familiar, it it should. It sounds like a toddler, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he uses that as an image. You know, picture a grown person acting like a toddler, you know, nursing, um, wearing diapers, sucking their thumbs, Mm -hmm. you know. Something's gone wrong when that's the case, when you see that. But that's the image here. It's designed to be provocative and to shock them and to sting a little bit. And um, worse still, if you look at the verses we just read, he says, this is really selfish of you all to be this way because you should be teaching other people by now. You shouldn't be taking, but you should be giving by now. You should have grown in your faith enough to actually be investing in other people. Mm -hmm. I think we need to pause for a quick moment. Um, And there's a good description of maturity in general, like Christian maturity specifically, I would love for you to, you know, restate that, give that to us, and expand on it a little bit. Yeah, t- this definition of being mature as being a teacher rather than a student. Let's see, I'm trying to find the exact words in the verse. Yeah, here we go, verse 12. 
Uh, by this time, you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you the elementary tr- truths of God's word all over again. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's the challenge for us pastors is uh, as, as we lead churches, it's helping people move to that point where they're not always feed me, feed me, feed me. Uh, but are asking this question, how can I feed other people? Mm-hmm. You know, I have received instruction from the church and from mentors and whatever God has brought my way for how many decades of life I've lived. And now here's what maturity looks like for me, not taking, taking, taking some more, but how do I then pour that into other people? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting. I think that this passage that we just read has something to say to the church today um, that Maybe there's some even listening to this podcast who would be convicted by the Holy Spirit and say, wow, this is speaking to me. Like, I, I've i received a lot over mm-hmm. my time here on earth, mm-hmm. and it's time I pay it back a little bit. And so whether that is giving or serving or leading something or mentoring somebody, that is what it looks like for me to continue my Christian walk. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there, there's going to be continual receiving of care and attention and instruction, but Maturity means also starting to teach, starting mm-hmm. to give back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two words in there that stood out to me, though, when you were talking, teachers and takers. Mm. Um, and as we look at that maturity, really what you're saying is moving forward in maturity would bring you towards teaching and instructing people in Christ as opposed to taking and always just feeding. Right. And yeah. if you don't, you'll just stagnate. Yeah. And you'll feel discontent. And yeah, churches that are filled with takers are not really fun places to be. Right, yeah. So moving beyond taking to teaching or serving or leading, mentoring, whatever, super important for everybody to make that turn at some point in their Christian life. Right. That's an interesting self-assessment question for anybody listening or watching Am I more of a teacher or am I more of a taker in my Christian community? Uh, And what does that say about uh, where God is leading me or how I need to continue to grow? Um, But we'll let you do that on your own. I want (laughs) to keep reading. Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 3 say this, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. Yeah, so to sum up these three verses, he's saying it's time to move beyond the elementary things. You should have this down by now. And he mentioned six specific things. We won't get into them, but many people think they were the catechism used for Jewish converts to Christianity. So as he lays out just this bullet point list of six things you should know by now, it's kind of like, hey, this is what you received on day one. This was the basic teaching, and you should have this down. But many did not, apparently. So to bring this into today's world, I see a parallel here as well. You know, many Christians, uh, our foundation is the gospel. And yet if I ask many people, and I do from time to time, you know, tell me about the gospel, uh, I don't know if it's just because they don't think about it often or they haven't reviewed it or maybe they're caught off guard, but they seem to have a very, very surface level and even inaccurate view of the most basic fundamental thing in the faith. Mm. So this passage is an encouragement to me and everybody to like, hey, it's time to really shore up that foundation and be really confident in it so we can build on it. Yeah. Let's continue forward in our reading. It, um, Hebrews 6 verse 4 says this, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance, to 
through their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Wow, this is a difficult uh, section of the book, mm-hmm. one that troubles people more than almost any anything else, because it sounds like you can lose your salvation. It sounds like if you walk away, not only do you lose your salvation, you can't come back. And uh, we could devote a whole episode to this, a whole sermon to this, <laughs> a whole series to this. Um, but we're going to deal with it briefly here because mm-hmm. we just made the decision. This is going to be a seven-part series, not a 40-part <laughs> series. But the long and short of it is this. When you come to a passage like this that sounds like, oh, this is at odds with something I've been taught, Some you have to harmonize it with the rest of Scripture because all of the Bible is written ultimately by God. There's going to be no contradictions. It should fit together. So you read the less clear parts in light of the more clear parts. And the Bible is very clear uh, all over the place that you cannot lose your salvation. For instance, Jesus himself in John 10 said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And in John 6, all the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And of course, the Apostle Paul wrote about uh, perseverance a lot in Philippians 1. He said, I'm confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, now, if you can't lose your salvation, then what is this passage about? Well, let's just acknowledge the fact today and then there are people who walk away from church. It's just Mm -hmm. a thing. It's very prevalent now, actually. Mm -hmm. So who are these people that fall away? Um, If we take those passages we just read seriously, they were never Christians to begin with. They appear to be, they were exposed to the gospel, they were catechized, maybe even made a profession of faith, maybe part of the community in numerous ways, uh, but that doesn't guarantee that you're actually in a relationship with Christ. And Jesus himself alluded to this possibility, Matthew seven twenty one. remember this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Mm-hmm. So in, in other words, apostasy is a real thing. People can appear to be Christians, um, but not be. Mm-hmm. Look at Judas, for instance. Look at the rebellious Israelites who were delivered from Egypt but never entered the promised land. Um, so I think, you know, one final verse to bring into the equation here as we think about this is the parable of the sower from Matthew chapter 13. It's just a fact that some people receive the teaching and it seems like it's growing in their life for a while and then it's gone. The parable parable of the sower said just that. A farmer went out to sow seed and as he was sowing seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up, some on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly, but the soil was shallow, and when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Another seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. And Jesus later goes on to explain the metaphor of all these different soils, talking about, you know, some some of this, it's illustrating someone who hears the word and receives it, with joy even, but because they have no root, it only lasts a short time. Trouble or persecution comes along, 
and it quickly fades away. So yeah, it's just, it's a fact, you know, when we look at all, all of this together, uh, we see it's possible for someone to be part of our community and to receive the teaching and enjoy the blessings of being part of what God's doing and still to fall away. In fact, the very next parable, by the way, uh, there in Matthew chapter 13, right after the parable of, of the sower is the parable of weeds. It just it says plainly that in the community there's going to be plants and there's going to be weeds. And sometimes it's so hard to tell the difference. You better not take the weeds out. It's growing together so closely it's impossible to pull them out. Mm, yeah, and there's a beautiful connection in Hebrews uh, in some of the verses there as well. Hebrews 6, 7 says that the land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. <laughs> yeah. So it's almost a little parallel there of the parable of the soils. Interesting. Mm. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, though, he does not believe this is the case with the people he's writing to. Verse 9, even though we speak like this, dear friends, like we're speaking hypothetically here, um, but even though we speak like this, we're convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. Right. And then he reminds them that God is faithful to what he has promised. Hebrews 6.13, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged." We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So it sounds like there's human responsibility and divine sovereignty. They're, they're both really there in, in chapter 6, really clearly. Uh, how can that be, both of those together? It's mysterious, and again, another topic that could be a whole episode or whole series, but we have to embrace that mystery of Scripture that both are simultaneously true. We as humans, we have to take seriously this uh, this responsibility. We have to trust God and persevere in the faith, and we have to also take seriously God's promise that it says here he's confirmed uh, with an oath. Like, he didn't have to do that. Mm. God can't lie. But for us to condescend to our need for assurance and um, just our humanity, he did that. He, he gave us the best proof that he could possibly give, a double assurance that his promise is true. So both are simultaneously true. And that is an anchor for us. That's one of the best takeaways from this text. Um, it's just an anchor for us in the stormy times of life. This was written to people in the first century going through storms of life, and it's written to you whoever you are, wherever you are going through the storms of life. And your anchor is that God cannot lie and his purposes are true and will stand. And he's gone as far as to even assure you 
with an oath. Yeah. All right. So now that we've made it to chapter seven, the author's lengthy aside is over, and and now we're back to the main point. Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Yeah. Isn't it interesting? You can see, you can sense the aside ending, and he weaves back in that main topic. He says, well, our forerunner Jesus has entered behind the curtain on our behalf. He's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And boom, we're right back in the main topic. Mm-hmm. Jesus is superior. And you know, I went over the logic of chapter 7 in my sermon this week in some level of detail, so we won't duplicate it here. We won't go through these verses here on the podcast. I encourage you to look up the sermon at cascadefellowship.org if you missed it or if you want to check it out. But the long and short of it is, hey, there's this mysterious character in Genesis 14 named Melchizedek. He blessed Abraham, which is wild. Who is this guy Mm -hmm. who's greater than Abraham? The greater blesses the lesser. And Abraham tithed to him. So it's like Abraham recognizes this mysterious guy is greater than he is. And unlike pretty much everybody else in the book of Genesis, his birth, his death, his genealogy, none of that is recorded, giving us a picture, a literary device, a picture of someone who lives forever and giving us a picture of someone who's a priest, not simply because he was born into a family, but because he was appointed by God. Mm. And of course, this gives us a picture of Jesus, who's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, a real person. But also his primary function in the Old Testament is simply to be a foreshadowing of Jesus, our high priest. Hmm. And God made this oath quoted in, uh, in Hebrews from uh, Psalm 110.4, an oath that Jesus would be an, a priest in this order forever. Mm-hmm. So maybe uh, this verse right here is a good ending point, Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Absolutely. That's the key word forever. That's what makes our high priest better. It makes Jesus better and greater. Um, So as we'll see on next week's podcast, the Old Testament priesthood was just a foreshadowing of the real high priest. And the Old Testament sacrifices, they also were just a foreshadowing of the real sacrifice. So with that, I believe we've come to the very center and the heart of this letter, and we're going to tackle that next time. Jesus is the greatest sacrifice. We hope that you'll join us next week as we continue our conversation in Hebrews. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss what we're talking about here. And if you missed the Sunday sermon, like Bill said, we hope that you'll head to the website so that you can stay up to date on everything we're talking about, make those deep faith connections for you to continue to mature in your faith. Until then, we'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. See you soon.